Hi there, it's Tracy, and I have a special bonus episode for you today. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that season five of the show will be launching soon in the new year. Season five will be Lost and Found, stories about the people and things we've lost and the journey to reclaim and rebuild the broken pieces. If you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org. Also, we just launched a new initiative called VBP Journeys. It's a digital space where you can share photos and memories of your family's diaspora story. This project is still in the prototype stage, so be sure to check it out and give us feedback. Go to www.vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash journeys. In this episode, we have a pod swap with our friends from 7 Million Bikes. I'm sharing with you a discussion I had with host Neil McKay. 7 Million Bikes is an English-language podcast based in Vietnam that shares stories of people around the world with a deep connection to the country. Neil and I talked about the making of the Vietnamese Boat People podcast, my background, and how the podcast grew into a nonprofit to encourage intergenerational dialogue about history and heritage. Neil and I also discovered that we have many other things in common beyond just our love for Vietnam. He shares his Scottish background and how recording conversations with his grandfather was an important way for him to reconnect with his roots and Vietnam as his second home, and why he started the podcast to connect non-Vietnamese people to Vietnamese culture. Take a listen. All right, welcome to another episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. I'm your host, as always, Neil Mackay. Now, my guest today is the founder and creator of the Vietnamese Boat People podcast, It's an award-winning podcast which shares the stories of Vietnamese diaspora. And it's something that we've talked a lot about on the show in previous seasons, especially with guests who are parents. Sorry, something we've talked a lot about with our guests who are children of people who were, in fact, Vietnamese boat people. She's the youngest of seven children and was born in Nha Trang here in Vietnam before her family risked their lives to flee Vietnam. My guest today, I'm very excited to have on, is Tracy Nguyen Mang. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. You are very, very welcome. I'm very excited to have you on. I try not and get too overexcited for certain guests. I don't want other guests to feel bad, but um, I have been excited for this one. And partly because I I became aware of your podcast, um, I don't know exactly when, either earlier this year or late last year. And, and then all of a sudden, it was one of those things, then the topic just kept coming up with my guests, because if you look back through, I have a lot of VQs or Vietnamese overseas. I know different people use different terms, but people that are um, the diaspora from around the world, which I'd never even heard that word before. And then now uh, I realized that it's, it's a really important term, and it's especially for Vietnamese who are now very much spread out across the world. So honestly, as soon as I heard your podcast, which is really amazing, um, congratulations on that and congratulations on winning an award. That's amazing. Almost immediately, I was like, I want to have her on the show. I want Tracy uh, on 7 Million Bikes. So look, let's get into it. Um, tell me all about a Vietnamese boat people because I've listened to it. I love it. I think it's unbelievable. Um, for me as a non-Vietnamese person, I've lived here a long time, obviously. 
I've re- I've read some books. I've read a little bit about Vietnamese boat people, and uh, but I've learned so much more from your podcast. And something, and you can talk on it a bit more, and I, then I'll stop talking. But even from my own experience with friends here, I know that it's difficult. It's a difficult experience and situation to talk about, whether they're a boat person or whether it's um, related to the war. I know people here who their parents have never really told them much about their experiences. They've just overheard stuff where they've been drinking beer with their friends, and that's the only way that they've learned what their parents actually went through. And so that's what I think is a so I kind of knew this already and then seeing, uh, listening to your podcast, reading your website and seeing that's actually a massive, massive, I don't know if it's the issue or challenge you could call it around the world for the Vietnamese diaspora to have those conversations. And one of the things, and then I will stop talking and, and I want to I hear from you. Um, I thought was amazing on your website was the conversation kit to talk with parents. So please talk about that as well. So I'm going to stop talking. Please tell all of our listeners because I'm sure they're as excited as I am. How did the Vietnamese boat people start? What is that about? And tell us everything. Thank you. No, everything, all your observations are right on point. Um, For me, I mean, uh, you know, in your introduction, I came to the United States at the age of three. Um, So we, you know, we stayed in Vietnam after the war. I mean, the diaspora journey of the Vietnamese people um, are at varying levels, but really up until 1975, there were very few Vietnamese people living in other countries. Um, And if they were, it was because they were either studying overseas or involved in some sort of diplomatic um, career. And so 1975 was really the point where because of the war and because people were trying to flee the conflict of the war and the and the results, that's where the community was spreading all over the world. And for me, growing up back then in 1981, which is when I came to the U.S., there were few Vietnamese people. Um, they were starting to populate, but for, and depending on where you lived in the United States, you might be surrounded by a community where like they were familiar with other Asian groups like Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, but Vietnamese Americans, like they don't really know anything about Vietnamese people other than the war, because that was what was being portrayed um, within the U.S. media. So for me, um, and I think my experience when I started the podcast, I, I discovered that it was very common. Inside our house, I spoke Vietnamese. I mean, it's my first language, but I never formally got educated in Vietnamese. Um, but outside of our home, you can just imagine as a child, I just wanted to fit in. I was surrounded by a lot of, um, you know, white friends. And I was in um, I was in the public school system, but based on the dividing points, I ended up in a school where there were very few minorities, where it was a lot of middle to upper class. And I just happened to be on the borderline of government housing. You know, my parents were in the low income bracket. And so... When I stepped outside of my house, it was a completely different world at school. And so a lot of what I think I spent my childhood doing was kind of suppressing my history and heritage because I wanted to adapt and assimilate. And I think my parents wanted that for all of us. So there was that understanding that, you know, we don't have to always talk about the past. The children are too young. And to your point, it's very traumatizing, you know, and so Um, My mom had always been very open about what our life was like in Vietnam. 
Um, you know, we lived in very poor living conditions. My parents actually came from a lot of wealth, but, you know, as um, you might have heard or read, you know, there was a lot of regulations afterwards. So everybody was kind of put on similar um, social economic class. And it was it was hard and we were struggling. And then when we came to the U.S., we were still struggling, right? I mean, now we didn't speak the language. We didn't know the culture. We were on like subsidized housing, food stamps, whatever it might be. And so all of that, I think it's just heavy for a child. Let me just fast forward of how Vietnamese boat people began. I think it is, I feel like what I call the... Um, the epic combination of varying forces. <laughs> One, I became a mother. I had two children um, and I got married and um, had children a little bit later. I mean, nowadays it's common, but I was, you know, 35 um, by the time I had my first child. And so by the time I turned 40, I was in this moment where I you know, was very doing very well in corporate America, but I was always questioning whether or not that's what I wanted to do. Um, at the same time, when I turned 40, my dad turned 80. And I'm the youngest of seven. So, you know, his, my children were born and my dad was 80 and my youngest child was two. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know how much longer my parents are going to be around. And I just am not sure that I know enough about our history to be able to even tell our children. Um, and also, like, all these things were coming back to me. You know, I my children were born in New York City. And also, this generation of parents were crazy. I mean, I was constantly looking for the best preschool, every, you know, gadget that came out, um, learning or comfort, whatever it might be to raise your child. I was all over it. I was, like, monitoring their poop schedule on my mobile app. Like, crazy things that, like, my parents never had the time to think about. <laughs> Um, and, you know, we bought our first house, um, both my husband and I had demanding jobs. So we had a nanny to take care of the kids. So I was just at this phase of my life where I was like, everything that I'm able to provide for my children today is nothing that I grew up with. Um, you know, we came from very humble, modest beginnings in the U S and so it just felt like I was, um, distancing them from all the history um, and the upbringing. And it also made me question like the values of how I was raising my children. And so all of these forces going on in my mind. So finally, one day I said, you know what? I should just record my family's story. And I bought a mic and I went down to DC because um, my parents were in Northern Virginia at the time. And I just said, hey, I'm kind of starting this oral history for our family. Um, can you just like tell me the story? Because I just, you know, I want to save it for like the grandchildren. I was like, I feel like growing up, you told me bits and pieces of it. And that only came from mom. Um, and dad never talked about it. And my brothers never talked about it. Um, and so my family is, it goes four boys and three girls. And so my oldest brother and I, the age gap is 17 years. And, um, in 1979, my dad left with my oldest brother. In uh, 1980, my three brothers were teenagers. They escaped by themselves. And then in 1981, my mom took my sisters and I, and I was three and my oldest sister was 10. So these were three separate escapes, three years apart. Um, and if your listeners are not familiar with um, these journeys, 
it was very expensive and risky to leave at that time. So for an entire family of nine to leave together, one, we could not afford it. Um, but two, it was highly risky. Um, and then also the thought process is if some family members can make it you know, outside into the United States, perhaps they can send money and support the ones that are left behind. Um, so that is a very common theme among uh, families back then when they were trying to flee the country. But my brothers had a really hard time because they came here as teenagers. So they were already put in the school system in high school, if you can imagine. Um, and they didn't speak the language. And back then there was no ESL, English as a second language. That course is now common in the public school system, but they didn't have that back then. So my brothers went astray, um, you know, as they became teenagers and young adults. So like our relationship wasn't close and I was too young to even like ask them the right questions or even be curious to be quite honest. Uh, my dad is your typical, I think, Vietnamese man, very quiet, very reserved. Um, I actually don't remember having a real conversation with him longer than 20 minutes. That was just how our relationship was. Um, but now I was 40 and I'm like, what the heck do I have to lose? <laughs> like, and, and I think, I think as soon as I told my dad that I said, you know what, I just want to share this with the grandchildren, dad. I feel like I don't really know anything. Like, I don't really know how you and mom met. I don't know like what your escape was like. So for the first time, my dad and I talked for six hours. I'm not kidding. Like we didn't even eat. Like after breakfast, we sat down, we skipped lunch. I mean, maybe we took, you know, restroom breaks and had some coffee and water, but my dad was just so open and honest. And I learned so much about um, what it was like for them through his perspective too, which I think is very different. Um, and then I went on to my brothers who, again, I never knew their story and I never knew how hard it was for them, um, you know, living in Vietnam at between, you know, eight to 14 after the fall of Saigon. And they all of a sudden had to become men. They had to go out and earn a living because they had these two, you know, three baby sisters that they were trying to help my parents raise. Um, and it's, it was like their entire childhood was gone. Um, and even in the US, it was gone, right? Because now it was like a whole different set of challenges that they had to come through. So I collected all of those stories. Um, and along the way, I was also reading other books and stories, and I was doing research on oral histories. Um, and I didn't know what to do with the recordings, to be honest. I was like, okay, so now I have like over 20 hours of family recordings. I'm like, I could just stash it away and be like, I did my job. You know, um, I don't know everything, but I feel like I know so much more than I ever did growing up. Um, but I had this itch in back of me that said, you know what, I cannot be the only one trying to understand this. Um, and I, when I was reading oral histories, um, or actually researching oral histories and going to universities and trying to find these like audio archives that are so impossible to find and written archives. And I just thought, you know, of course we don't know about this because any oral history project that's been done is like hidden somewhere in like a university or a library. And, and how is the everyday person like me supposed to be able to, to know it? Um, and I also started reading other books like 
around that time, um, The Sympathizer was extremely popular. I know that's fiction, but it's based on a lot of like um, lived experiences as, you know, how the Viet Thanh Nguyen came up with the whole plot. Um, uh, Tibu's uh, The Best We Could, which I love. It's a graphic novel about um, just her upbringing and her parents' background. I read uh, Tan Ha Lai, um, Inside Out and Back Again. So all these books I was absorbing. And what I was also finding, which I think when we started the podcast in 2018 is so different than what the environment is right now for Asian American narrative. Um, I just was finding that there were a lot of pub- there weren't a lot of published books, number one. Number two, the ones that were published were typically memoirs or about an individual story. And I said, you know what, what about like just everyday people like me? who want to share their story? Or what about like just letting other people kind of reconnect with their own family stories? Even if their families aren't talking about it, they can learn about this history through other people's stories. And I also just loved podcasts at the time because I was commuting <laughs> a lot. So I was always, always listening. So I know I'm rambling, but long story short, I said, I'm going to start my own podcast. I have all these recordings and the first season is going to be about my family. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, and it's going to be highly curated because I think Vietnamese people, our heritage is centered around food, community, and stories. Um, and I thought, you know what, it's going to be curated and it's going to be like storytelling. Um, and that every episode is going to be centered around something unique or specific to this individual's experience and perspective. Um, because I, while I do feel that millions went through this journey, while I do feel like this is a monumental part of history, that there are common threads across every individual's stories, um, the beauty of oral history is it's, one, it's about one person's perspective, memory, and experience. And that is always unique. That is always unique. No individual is ever the same and no individual's um, interpretation and observation and outcome of what they've experienced is exactly the same. Um, so I launched season one with my family. I don't even know if my dad and mom has actually ever <laughs> listened to the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure they're like, oh, I don't want to hear myself talk. <laughs> um, and from that point, I just started my own website. I started social media. I was like, hey, if you have a story to share, contact me. And to my surprise, organically, people were contacting me. Um, and the first, you know, the first few, as you know, as a podcaster, I kind of had to find people. So I was watching documentaries, I was reading up and I would reach out to people and be like, hey, you know, I read this about you and I was, I'm starting this podcast and it's really simple, nothing you have to do other than spend an hour talking on the phone with me. And, um, and I think because I had season one out, it really, um, I think, showed people that I was very honest and sincere in what I was trying to do, that I was willing to put my family's vulnerable story out there. And, um, you know, that I was doing this because I really wanted other people to learn about this part of history. It's not taught in American history books. I don't know what the Vietnamese history courses are like for children. Um, I can imagine it's, it's censored in, in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know what it's like overseas, but in the United States, 
when they teach about Vietnamese history, it's about the Vietnam War. And it ends at the Vietnam War. And um, that's, that's not just excluded to Vietnamese. That's, I think, all Asian American history is not um, widely taught in the public school system. That's something that here in the U.S. we have been trying to change in the last year with um, the whole AAPI campaign. Um, but for me, it was just all of those forces that drove me to start this. Um, and having children of my own and feeling like their narrative wasn't represented, um, feeling like at some point they're gonna grow up like me and want to understand this. And I wanted to have resources out there. And the podcast was important to me. Like I was very specific on how I wanted the show to be. I didn't want it to be a long oral history of an hour or more that was unedited because I just thought, you know, these are interesting stories, but if they're not, told in a storytelling format, people would lose interest. Um, I also felt like I was designing it for people like myself, where I was a full-time working mom, I had all these priorities, and I really don't have a lot of time investment. So I would like something bite-sized and packed with content and um, trauma. And, and so the editing process, I just took um, a lot of time and craft with it. By the way, I knew nothing about podcasting. I went to night class at the local film center. I YouTubed a lot of courses. It was trial and error. Um, you know, I, I feel like I knew how to tell a good story just from my corporate background in management consulting. I was used to like crafting pitches and stories and trying to like know where the hook is. Um, but Technically, I didn't have a lot of the other skills. And so all of that I had to learn myself until I finally just put an ad out there. And surprisingly, people volunteered their time. Creators, and our team is mostly based on volunteering, um, but people who are Vietnamese Americans who are creators and editors who believe in this mission are now a part of our team doing this with me. Um, and I just, you know, it's been such an amazing journey. Um, and now even more so, I see all these books that are coming out by Vietnamese authors and people sharing memoirs or fiction and really representing our narrative. And it makes me so proud that, um, you know, our podcast is a small part of that journey that the younger generations are able to experience. So I don't know if I answered all your questions. No, no, I'm just, I'm mesmerized here listening. No, that, that's um, unbelievable. Like, um, so I'll just touch on a few things. Your last point there, though, I think you're a big part of it, not a small part. I think going forward, um, there's, as far as I, I have seen, and I don't know every podcast in the world, but I don't see anything else like yours. Podcasting is so massive. So if anyone's looking for something like yours, you're going to be the one to go to. You've built up obviously an amazing community. I've seen your social media and your website. Uh, we can talk about your logo design as well in a minute because I know a bit about that. That's in the background there behind you if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're listening, you go and look up the Vietnamese podcast, the, the Vietnamese boat people, you'll see it. Um, a couple, one funny point I want to make, as you say, about the Vietnamese history not being taught in a, the American public education system. They barely teach their own history correctly, so I wouldn't really trust them to teach anyone else's history to be perfectly honest so someone has to do it themselves so so <laughs> good job um but no honestly just i was absolutely loving listening to you there i love the genesis story of anything but the genesis story of this i like to hear the behind the scenes of what was going through your head why you, your choices as a mother as a 
whatever all those choices where you described at the beginning that made you want to do this, that, and it really touched, uh, really resonated with me because, so the last time I went home to Scotland, um, so my grandfather now is 92 and my grandfather is closer to me than a father. He's like my best friend in the world and, and like a father figure to me, but he's 92 and he's very aware of his own mortality as am I. And so for that same reason, I did the exact same thing as you. I sat down with him for an hour. It was my last day and I finally had some time. And I had my podcast microphone with me in my suitcase for this reason. I brought it with me home to Scotland. I had the Blue Yeti. I don't know if you know what the Blue Ice, Blue Yeti, Yeti Blue Ice, is that the name of it? Blue Yeti. That's what I had too. That was my first mic. (laughs) Me too. And it (laughs) broke pretty soon after I got it. And I never, I never was able to get it fixed because I even went to like microphone places. I tried posting on expat groups here because that's how you survive in, in Vietnam asking, does anyone know where I can get this microphone fixed? And I've still got it in the cupboard one day. If anyone's listening to this and you're inside gone and you can fix microphones, please reach out to me because it's like a two and a half million dong, which is like 120 bucks microphone. And it's just been sitting there. Just, anyway, yeah, so you know. So I took that microphone back to Scotland And I sat down in my grandpa's spare bedroom with him for an hour. And I knew a lot of his stories. I wasn't really getting much new because, you know, through the years, my grandpa's a big talker. That's why I'm I'm basically like a a replica of my grandpa. And, um, but I got him to tell these stories that I kind of knew little bits about. I got him to tell him on on record as well, how he met my grandma. And it was the exact same, similar to you, like, uh, I wanted that on record for the family as well. We've got quite a close-knit family. And so I recorded it and then I sent it in the WhatsApp group. Like, here's here's my conversation with uh, with Grandpa. And you know what? I don't think I've ever listened to it again. And it, I see it on my computer in my folder that, that I have and I see it. And I'll, I'll listen to it one day. I don't really feel the need to yet. But so, so beautiful to hear your story. Um, the one thing about our podcast that we are going to touch on the war, but it's not about the politics of, of the war. It's about the impacts that the war had had on individual, everyday citizens um, of Vietnamese families and individuals. But I always say that our show and our stories, really what it centers around is what I call the human spirit. So um, a lot of what we curate in our storytelling format is I try to build an emotional connection to the listener. Like I want the listener to feel like he or she really understands this individual story as they're listening to it. Almost as if like they're sitting in the same room having coffee together or like tea or talking over a bowl of pho and really like intimate face-to-face, like, you know, I'm going to give you a peek into my diary type of thing. Um, So like emotional connection is really important to us. But when I say centers around the human spirit is because I I do believe that every story that we've tried to tell and this, that there are common strengths and emotions and resilience that humans in general have within them. And this podcast just happens to be sharing it about the Vietnamese community, but you don't have to be Vietnamese to be able to connect to that inner strength, to know that like, yes, times, you know, can be very difficult but we all have it within us to really fight through it or to heal in some capacity, even if we're still fighting through it. Um, And so that's what we try to do with our stories is that, you know, yes, the history of it is always gonna go back to the war in some capacity, but it's not about the war. It's about just 
you know, people in general. And um, we hope that, and we always try to end every episode with something that I call subtly inspiring. So like, I always try to have a message at the end that says, you know what, we hope that you take away some inspiration and motivation from the episode without, you know, literally saying those words. No, you do a fantastic job. And listening to you now talk about it makes me realize again even more. So you're talking about this format that you've went away and learned how to do. And I guess as a listener, I just listen to it and enjoy it. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you do do that. And you have done that. And you have crafted a story. Because it's a completely different format to what we're doing right now. So as I said to you, we're just going to have a conversation and we see where it goes. And, you know, um, so it's, it's quite a simple format. And I do edit it but that's more for quality rather than like storytelling effect. But for you to go away and learn how to do that and then craft it to me, because you do, you have to, I, I know how editing works and just editing this format can take a lot of time. So for you to then chop it up, make it into a story, edit it, put it together and then make it so good. It's, it's really impressive. So again, well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of, I say love, sweat and tears. And I the tear part, my team and I always laugh about because we're like, these are like tearjerker moments. Yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> Just listening to the yeah. stories, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm so lucky to have a team that's willing to pour hours into this. Um, and y- you get it as a podcaster. Like our shows are by design, 30 minutes or less. Um, we have some that are the exception, but the majority is 30 minutes or less. But that is like, I'm talking 60 plus hours of editing process to get yeah, to that 30 I minutes. I can imagine for a show like yours. I mean, for me, we're touching on this, and this was, I was going to ask you about this. You left, you arrived in America in 1981, right? And so you learned, you said you spoke Vietnamese, and you, well, you speak Vietnamese, you learn from your parents. But we've learned this on the podcast through interviewing people. You speak a different Vietnamese to people in Vietnam. And I found this fascinating that Vietnamese language for people who left around that time period, their language stopped. So like the word for airport is the one I always can reference. So there's now a different word for airport than from when your parents left. Wait, what is it now? Fi is how I would say airport. It's not Fi I can't remember. No, my, you know, I, my, I don't know. I can't speak Vietnamese and I can't even remember <laughs> the basic parts. But Fi was the one that one of our guests, it was Tam Le. I don't know. Do you know Tam Le who's based in Houston? She's the, the chef. Lemon, or Lemon Tam. She's, uh, she's amazing. Uh, it was her that told me about this because she landed with her parents and her parents were calling it Fi or Is that what you said? Yeah. And then she's like, and she's no, it's not that we don't call it that anymore. And then I had a guest on this season just came out, the episode just came out to Inver, who runs a, a language school here. And her target market is Viet Q's and teaching Viet Q's and updating their Vietnamese because they moved back to Vietnam thinking they can yeah. speak Vietnamese. And then they speak Vietnamese, and people are like, What is that yeah. you're talking? Yeah, I mean, it is a real thing. So you know, there. This is another actually topic that we're going to explore in future seasons. But <clears throat> going back to my generation and younger, it's we learn the language through our parents, and we um, 
my parents sent me to summer school for Vietnamese language, which I hated. And now I totally regret not paying attention. The so second like, guess I, to say that. The second guess. We I, had, uh, I think it was I'm the telling you, I am not, I am not unique in that perspective. <laughs> I, I bet like 95% of Vietnamese Americans you speak to are going to say very similar things. Yeah, she said she um, hated it. Then she moved here and she had to relearn Vietnamese. And she's like, oh. I had to spend so much money to learn Vietnamese. Why didn't I just learn it? When I was younger. And then you regret it. You regret yeah. it, right? You grow up and you're like, oh God, what a valuable thing that I yeah. totally, you know, did not appreciate. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I read and write like an eight-year-old. I speak <laughs> probably more like a 16-year-old. Um, From 1975. So, yes. And it's kind of <laughs> similar to like, think about like the English language. The English language evolves as well. Yeah, so I think it's very similar. You yeah. know, it's like the word groovy isn't used anymore. <laughs> Um, but you know, so I think it, I think it's similar. I think every, um, language evolves. And to your point, we, uh, we took my, my parents had the language, they came to the United States and they taught us what the language was when they left. And so that's what we know. Um, but there is this whole, I think I would call it sort of like, almost like similar to the coming of age. I, it's like a 360 journey where I think, um, you know, our generation w- lost our language, essentially. Like, even if we kept our heritage, we've pretty much lost our language. And I think there's a movement to circle back. Um, like, right now, I really would love to teach my children Vietnamese. I've been trying to. Um, I, I live in a mixed-race household. My husband's not Vietnamese. So, like, it's really hard to be disciplined when you're the only one in the house Um, And that was even harder because I was a full-time working mom. And so like they weren't interacting with me um, as much as they were with like their preschool teacher or, you know, so it becomes very difficult. But I think the 360 is that like everything that we try to not focus on growing up, like who needs Vietnamese language? I'm just trying to learn English. I'm just trying to like make it in school and succeed is coming back to be like, oh my God, my kids have to learn Vietnamese. Like they can succeed in both Vietnamese and English. Like, why did I ever think that you couldn't do both? You know, um, Mm. so you're seeing that. And I think it's in other cultures too. I don't think it's um, limited to just Vietnamese culture, but it's, I think it's part of just like the, um, the immigrant journey, to be honest, Mm. like any immigrant family comes over and as much as you want your children to hold on to their heritage, you also want them to assimilate. So you're a lot more forgiving, right? Mm. When they start to learn the English language versus try to retain um, their heritage language. So um, I think it's just kind of that journey that we're experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us, um, before we're going to go into the final questions that we ask everyone, tell us what's coming up. Tell me more. I, I said in the beginning, tell me about the conversation starter kit. And I, yes. I do want to mention going all the way back to the beginning, you, you touched on your parents' story. There's seven of you, you left in different stages I've listened to the episode, obviously, as I've said. If you are listening, please go and listen to the Vietnamese boat people. Listen to that first episode. It will blow your mind what your family went through. And they all successfully made it to the US, right? Which is just like the odds are so stacked against you, which is unbelievable. Before we started this episode, I was just telling my wife about it. And I was like, you should, her parents went through this amazing thing. Like the brothers had to hide in the house. The authorities came after them. Like the, the, 
when, when I was telling her, I was like, you know, your, your mum had to get the whole village to lie that your dad had like taken yeah. off. And like, what was it? Was it he'd lost loads of money and he'd just taken off or something like that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was like, just unbelievable what this family went through um, to get there. So yeah, please go and listen to that. So before we get through to the final questions, we'll just tell everyone about this conversation starter kit. Because I think when I read that, I was like, wow, as you can tell by the way I've been talking, I've interviewed lots of different guests who we've touched on this subject lots of time. And when I saw that on your website, I was like, wow, I bet that's so helpful to so many people. Yes, no, I appreciate uh, you asking. And actually, if I could share that in context with sort of other things that we do. Um, So the podcast started first and um, I was seeing like organically communities coming and people reaching out. And I was like, wow, like I was right. There is like people like me who really want a space for all of this. Um, So then we started doing like events in person and, you know, with COVID more online, which actually worked in our favor because we could reach to so many more people. Um, And then we did a blog because some people don't want to be interviewed but they want to share their story in like a personal journal or writing. So those things came first. And through those things, what I was learning was that when we did a community event or when someone submitted a blog, you know, I'd have very informal conversations with them. And what I was learning was that like more often than not, a lot of them were saying, you know, I was, I found your podcast and I really gravitated towards it because my parents didn't talk about this growing up. And so I had very limited knowledge. And I feel like when I listen to your podcast, I feel like maybe I can empathize a little bit more with my what my mom and dad had to go through. Maybe why they're so hesitant to talk about this because it is painful for some that really are still trying to heal within. Um, and so then I would I would say something like, well, you should just ask them. Like, what do you have to lose? You know, just ask them. I was like, I felt very intimidated to ask my dad growing up because we didn't have that one, that type of relationship. But when I finally got it in my head that like the worst he could do is just say he doesn't want to talk about it or, you know, say a couple of sentences. I was like, literally, that's the worst that could happen. But then I would get feedback that was like, yeah, but like, I don't even know where to start. You know, there's there's um, oral history kits out there, but they feel so like clinical. And that's when I just was like, you know what? I want people to have this dialogue at home. Like, I, I love the fact that they're listening to our podcast and they feel some sort of connection to their own family history, even if it's not their family story. Um, but what if we could then encourage them to now go home or sit down with a family member and ask these questions? And if it feels intimidating, what if we could create something that just makes it feel less intimidating? And that's how we came up with the concept of the conversation kit. And it's in digital form right now. I am in the process of trying to get it printed kits so that we can distribute them in the in certain communities or make them available for purchase. It's super um, cheap. Super cheap to get stuff printed here in Vietnam. Just I'll get it printed here yes. for you and send it over. <laughs> yes. I mean, we, you know, we did it to be like, it's free, it's digital. So if you have the time, look at it online or print it out. But the way that we set it up is that there is some historical context. It's a very short timeline of major events that might have led to, you know, their families wanting to flee. 
Um, and then there's like a template where like, as they're talking, they can like jot down stuff. Uh, we have instructions on how to record it themselves. Um, but I think the real basis of it is we designed it to be a game. And so um, there's four categories. Um, they're broken up into like um, memories, reflections, uh, you know, just categories of which underneath are 12 questions. And um, if you were to print it out or in the card game, it would be where you would take turns either um, two people or a family and just pick a card and ask a question. So what I think it does is that it minimizes the need of like, oh my God, what question do I ask first? Like, how do I even start this? So that it's just something simple that you can pick up and be like, hey, the card says mom and dad, like, where were you born in Vietnam? And tell me about your earliest memory of that place or your favorite memory of that place, right? Or tell us about your favorite dish in Vietnam and why you loved it so much. Because the thing about stories is that you learn so much by starting somewhere simple, right? Because they can say, you know what? I love bun mayo growing up. And Bundeo is actually my favorite dish. <laughs> but they can say, I love it because it reminds me of like every Sunday morning. That's what mom would do. Mm. My mom, your grandmother would, you know, do these steamed batches of Bundeo and serve them in these small, tiny ceramic dishes. Mm. But all of that comes out of just one question that says, yeah. what was your favorite dish and why? And what do you remember most about? Because they're not just going to give a one word answer. Like, oh yeah, it's bun me. They're going to yeah. expand. Yeah. You know? or, I mean, I know that from this them. podcast. I just have to say one question and then someone will talk for half an hour and I just sit here like fascinated. Well, you've been to Vietnam. You've been on a, a back of a motorbike, I presume, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so I just, used to be very scared of being <laughs> <back from laughs> We still are over here. We still are. So let's just pretend you're inside gone right now. If you could get on the a motorbike or the back of one, where would you go? Oh gosh. Um, you know, one thing that I have always wanted to do is actually um trace all the different cities that my parents have grown up or lived in. Um, so I've been to, back to most of them, but not all of them. Um, so my parents at one point lived in Guignang. I've never been there. Um, they also lived in Dainan. So I went there. I went to visit the uh, French Academy that my dad used to work at. Um, Nyajang, I've been there. That's where I was born. But there's so many other places um, that my parents have just had small stopping points in within their lives that I haven't been to. Um, and I think I would start with Green Young. I mean, I think early in their marriage, they have lived there for a couple of years. Some of my siblings were born there. And so I know, and my parents got married young. Like my mom was, um, I think she was 20. So, you know, those are still formative years. And I would like to be able to explore some of the places. I'd like to be able to um, check out like the Catholic school that my mom spent so much of her time in. Like, it wasn't like she was there, you know, till 2 p.m. I think she said she was there up until dinner time and like basically the Catholic school system raised her. Um, so I think those are kind of all the stopping grounds. So I guess maybe not one point in particular. I would I would start with Green Young, too. but yeah, I no, think I love so. It. When I, I, my grandfather, who I obviously mentioned earlier, was a, he was a, policeman not a soldier he was a policeman in Malaysia 
um, back in, and I'm going to forget the dates now, I think it was the 60s. No, anyway, 50s, 50s. He was a policeman in Malaysia. Anyway, he worked in a place called Slim River, tiny little place, but always growing up, he always mentioned how he was a policeman in Slim River and would tell you some stories about the time he had to shoot a pig that was stuck by the side of the road and all these kind of stories. So I always knew this place, Slim River. And my wife and I were traveling through Malaysia for a month and, and that was like, ah, we are going to Slim River, like without a doubt. So it was about, uh, I think if I remember, a two-hour train journey um, north of KL. So we were in KL and then we specifically got a train there. And it was so funny because this is not a tourist town at all. It's just this tiny, tiny little town, which has basically just got a motorway that runs through it. Like that is all there is, is a motorway. He lived, like he was working or a policeman on like a campung, like a little village and things like this. So he wouldn't have even been probably where the motorway was. He was probably way out in the jungle somewhere. But anyway, for me, it was just so important to go to this place that he talked about his whole life. And uh, it was one of just the most amazing things ever was to call him and be like, do you know where I am, Grandpa? And Because he, he knew I was traveling. And I was like, I'm in Slim River right now. And it was like, so that was uh, that was really cool to be able to to retrace that steps, even though you get there and it's just like, there's, there's nothing here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's still, just to say that you've been is, is awesome. I've only recently gotten a handle of how much time it takes us per episode. Um, but I bet, you, I bet I, you regret doing that now. Well, I think it's better because I'm glad that I did because now I'm I'm smarter about our process and then it helps me think financially, you know, how much money we want to raise again, because we're a nonprofit. Um, you know, these are things that I have to think about that I never thought about at the beginning because to your point, I was like, no, 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 I'm not getting distracted. Like it's going to, it's going to lose the heart in what I'm, <laughs> what I'm trying to do. If I like try to like, you know, put numbers around all of this. But um, I think that also it just comes naturally over time. You get more efficient and you get better at it. I think at the beginning, it's all about discovery. Mm. Um, and so there's definitely going to be a lot more hours involved in figuring out what works and what doesn't. And I feel like having done this um, <clears throat> for three years now, we've gotten to a place where, um, you know, I, I have a lot more clarity on what I'm trying to create in the process to get there. Um, but we're also evolving, like, you know, our upcoming seasons, I'm looking to explore different formats and different stories. And yeah, so I cool. think it's a natural progression. When I first went to Vietnam and why I fell in love with it and wanted to start a business of designing goods was because I did not know growing up how creative, artistic and talented Vietnamese people were. Um, and I think that pleasantly surprised me because there's also a sophistication to Vietnamese art. I don't know what it is. Like, um, just, I think the artistry that is part of the community in Vietnam, it, for me, it just feels like very sophisticated. It doesn't feel folky or not that I don't want to like offend anybody by like making some of these general terms, but I guess where I'm going is that like, the level of artistry, the imagination, the um, the technique, and the worldly sophistication of it is really impressive. And I don't think that enough people know that Vietnam truly is a creative country as well. Um, and I, I would hope that some of the art 
that comes out of Vietnam becomes more globally mainstream because I feel like it's still so undiscovered. And in our house, we actually have a couple of um, original paintings that over the years I've either bought in Vietnam or like when my family goes back, I ask them to go to galleries for me because I'm just um, amazed by it. And that is a pleasant surprise because growing up, I don't think you know, I knew that until I actually went to the country and just looked around me and just saw like how beautiful, you know, people were making all these beautiful things. Mm, yeah, no, great answer. And I think it just ties into what we said earlier is people have this picture in their mind of this wall-toned country of paddy, rice paddy fields. And, you know, it's never developed or changed, but it's a, it's a massively different place, which is why I love living here and, and talking to so many people about it. So, Thank you so, so much, Tracy. Uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, interview since we set it up. Since even before then, I was told you before, I was like, I want to get her on the show. Um, it's been actually a really surreal experience for me. Uh, I didn't know what you looked like until we did this. And I d it's surreal talking to someone and hearing your voice. And I was just listening to your latest episode today. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's your voice now. That's the person I was listening to today. <laughs> <laughs> so that, but it's been absolutely amazing. I would say give Vietnamese boat people a plug, but I think we've covered that. And I think if you're listening to this podcast this far, you know where to find a podcast. We always say like, oh, go listen to it wherever you find podcasts. If you're listening to this, you know where to go find your podcast. But make sure, please, if you're listening, go check out Vietnamese boat people. It is unbelievable. Tracy, congratulations on everything you've done. It's, uh, it's an amazing uh, effort by you and all the team as well. So tell all the team um, what an amazing job you guys have done. So thank you so much. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.